As a reminder, this podcast is made by Cardiology Fellows to enhance the educational experience in the CVICU. The content is not verified by host or speakers, and the content provided by this podcast is not intended as medical advice. All opinions represented are our own and do not represent the opinions of our employer. Hi everyone, welcome to the CVICU On The Go podcast. My name is Katie Gale, I'm one of the cardiology fellows, and today I am with Dr. Lisa Mendes, and we will be working through a case together. Hey, Dr. Mendes. Hi, Katie. Thank you for inviting me today. Thanks for being here. I guess we can jump right into our case if that's okay. Sounds good. All right. This is a 41-year-old woman with rheumatic heart disease who underwent a mitral valve replacement with a 29-millimeter St. Jude mechanical prosthesis. Her post-operative course was uncomplicated, and she was maintained on unfractionated heparin while awaiting therapeutic INR with warfarin. On post-op day 5, she became lightheaded and short of breath after walking with the physical therapist. The patient returned to her room where her shortness of breath continued despite resting. One hour later, a rapid response was called because of worsening shortness of breath, increased tachypnea, and increased work of breathing. Initially, her vital signs were as follows. She was afebrile with a temperature of 98.1. Her pulse was 103 beats per minute. Blood pressure was 111 over 49. And she had an O2 sat of 95% on ambient air. On physical exam, this is a thin woman. She's tachypnic and in mild distress due to shortness of breath. She has a thoracotomy incision, which is clean and dry. She's tachycardic with a regular rhythm. She has a crisp prosthetic S1, normal S2, and no S3 or S4. There were no murmurs. Her JVP was not well visualized. She had 2-plus radial and DP pulses. She was, again, tachypnic with decreased breath sounds at the bases of her lungs, and the remainder of her exam was unremarkable. An ECG was obtained that revealed sinus tachycardia with a heart rate of 110 beats per minute and no acute ST or T wave changes. She had a chest x-ray that showed just small bilateral pleural effusions, mild pulmonary vascular congestion, and a mildly enlarged cardiac silhouette. She was given one dose of IV Lasix and supplemental oxygen without improvement. Due to her increased oxygen requirement, and progressive hypotension, she was transferred to the cardiac ICU. On arrival to our cardiac ICU, she remained afebrile. Her pulse was now in the 120s. Her blood pressure was 70 over 35, and she had an O2 sat of 100% on four liters nasal cannula oxygen. Dr. Mendes, what would be your approach to this patient with hypotension, and how would we narrow our differential diagnosis based on this history? And also, if you could talk about what our most likely and less likely and can't-miss diagnoses would be in this situation. All right. Thank you, Katie. Well, I think the differential of hypotension is very broad, but in the, in the post-operative patient, I'm thinking about complications of the surgery and the early post-operative period. So these would include mechanical complications such as mitral valve dehiscence, a pneumothorax or hemothorax, cardiac tamponade, infection from the sternal wound, as well as um, hospital-acquired pneumonia, and even pulmonary embolus, especially if the patient has had a slow recovery and has been immobile. 
Other things to consider, obviously, would be um, arrhythmias that are very common in the postoperative state. And if this patient had underlying coronary disease or bypass surgery at the time of her mitral valve surgery, one would also consider graft failure and acute myocardial infarction. And then finally, given that this patient is fully anticoagulated, bleeding complications would still be high on my list. The physical exam is helpful for identifying potential causes of hypotension and the degree of hemodynamic compromise. Tachycardia associated with hypertension, cool extremities, decreased urine output, and altered mental status would all point towards a cardiogenic source. If you saw distended neck veins and had a pulsus paradoxus or respiratory variation in your palpable pulse, that would certainly suggest cardiac tamponade. And then uh, a new systolic murmur, which can sometimes be heard if the valve becomes incompetent or is dehissing, might suggest mitral regurgitation. And of course, we always inspect for signs of infection. That's great. I think that's really helpful for us to keep in mind kind of what we are looking for when we're doing our physical exam instead of just kind of doing the exam without a clear purpose or clear differential up front. So on my exam, this was a ill-appearing woman in moderate distress due to pain and tachypnea. She had moist mucous membranes, no scleral icterus. Again, her thoracotomy incision was clean and dry. She was tachycardic with a regular rhythm. Again, she had a crisp prosthetic S1, a normal S2. And on my exam, her JVP was elevated to 12 to 14 centimeters. Her femoral pulses also were robust until she took a big breath in. So there was a significant decrease in her femoral pulse with inspiration. She did have increased work of breathing using nasal cannula oxygen. Breath sounds were absent over her left base, but her lungs were otherwise clear. She didn't have any wheezes or rawls. She had hypoactive bowel sounds. She had diffuse tenderness to palpation in her abdomen without any localizing signs. She had no rebound or guarding and no rigidity. And her extremities, she had no edema and no rash. Dr. Mendes, given these findings on the physical exam, what additional testing would you want? So we definitely want to start with the basics, including lab work, an ABG or venous blood gas would be appropriate, an EKG to assess for arrhythmias and ischemia, and a, and a chest x-ray to look for infection, pneumonia, and pneumothorax. This is also an instance where a point-of-care ultrasound can be very useful and can be obtained while awaiting the other test results. Given the clinical findings that you shared with me on exam, POCUS can quickly assess for pericardial fluid as well as biventricular and mitral valve function. Great. The following labs were obtained and resulted. Her CBC showed a white blood cell count of 5.4, hemoglobin and hematocrit of 10 and 31, and platelets of 193. Her BMP was notable for a metabolic acidosis with a bicarb of 19. The remainder of her BMP and LFTs were within normal limits. We obtained a venous blood gas upon her arrival to the CCU. Her pH was 7.21 with a CO2 of 43, a bicarb of 17. We added on a lactate to that venous blood gas and it was elevated at 12.6. Her ECG at this time revealed sinus tachycardia with very subtle electrical alternands. A chest x-ray was performed and revealed cardiomegaly and a mild left pleural effusion. 
At this point, we reached for our echo. We did a bedside TTE, which revealed a large pericardial effusion that appeared to have some fibrinous component. There was a small RV with diastolic RV collapse. We checked the mitral inflow variation with respiration, and there was a 36% mitral inflow variation. The IVC was dilated without respiratory variation, and her LV ejection fraction and RV ejection fraction did appear normal, and her mitral valve also appeared to be functioning normally. So Dr. Mendes, given these findings, could you please discuss what is actually required for a diagnosis of tamponade? Yeah, absolutely. So let's first review the pathophysiology of pericardial tamponade. Remember that the normal pericardium is a sac that wraps around the heart and normally contains about 50 cc's of fluid. Normal pericardial pressure is equal to intrathoracic pressure and is typically less than 5 millimeters of mercury. In pericardial tamponade, accumulating fluid within the pericardium results in elevation in pericardial pressure compressing the cardiac chambers. As a result, the diastolic pressure in each chamber becomes elevated and equal to the pericardial pressure. These increased filling pressures reduce venous return both from the pulmonary and the systemic veins. And as a result, stroke volume is reduced and pulmonary congestion can develop. If the fluid is not drained, cardiogenic shock can ensue. I think the important thing to remember is that tamponade is a clinical diagnosis. So many times in the echo lab, we will review studies of patients with pericardial effusions that have echocardiographic signs of tamponade physiology. These include chamber collapse, marked respiratory variation in mitral and tricuspid inflow, and dilated IVC. And all are related to the compressive forces of the pericardial effusion. However, the diagnosis of pericardial tamponade is made at the bedside. So let's just go over what the classic findings are in, in a patient with pericardial tamponade. So first thing is tachycardia, which is a compensatory response to the reduced stroke volume from cardiac compression. Pulses paradoxus is an exaggerated fall in the systolic blood pressure of greater than 10 millimeters of mercury during inspiration. This is typically measured with the blood pressure cuff, but in this patient, it was actually detected by palpating the patient's peripheral pulse during respiration. Another finding is elevated neck veins, which are due to the elevated right-siding filling pressures due to the compressive forces of the effusion. And then finally, distant heart sounds may be present if there is a large pericardial effusion. But remember that it's not the size of the pericardial effusion that determines if tamponade physiology is present, but how rapidly the fluid accumulates. So for example, a patient that suffers from myocardial rupture as a complication of myocardial infarction can develop tamponade with as little as 100 cc's of blood within the pericardial space, while a patient that's uremic due to end-stage renal disease can have large effusions that accumulate over weeks and months, and they may have no signs of tamponade. Thanks, Dr. Mendes. I think that's really important for all of us to remember that our physical exam should be our guiding light when it comes to tamponade and an echo is just kind of a supporting test. Are there any situations in which the physical exam alone may not reveal the diagnosis? And if there are, what should we do in those situations? Yeah, I think that that's a great question. And again, it all comes back to your clinical impression and putting all the pieces of information together. 
So first of all, let's talk about tachycardia. So many of our cardiac patients are on medications that slow the heart rate, or a patient may be paced and be dependent on their pacemaker at a fixed rate. So in these cases, the heart rate may not only be blunted, but may contribute to the hypotension because the patient cannot compensate for the reduced stroke volume. Jugular venous distension is, is difficult to interpret even in a patient who is not an extremist. So if you have a patient who's having a really hard time breathing and is sitting bolt upright, jugular venous pressure can be difficult to estimate. Regarding the pulses, if your patient is already hypotensive, the magnitude of the fall in the systolic blood pressure with inspiration may be diminished or may not be present at all. And then finally, as we've already stated, distant heart sounds are only uh, likely to be detected or, or, or seen in patients who have very large pericardial effusions. If the effusion is relatively small volume, the heart sounds could still be normal. So I think all of our evidence is pointing us towards the fact that this patient is experiencing tamponade. After we've made that diagnosis, Dr. Mendes, how do you manage a patient? Well, pericardial tamponade is a cardiac emergency, and the treatment of choice is pericardial drainage, either percutaneously or surgically. While waiting for such interventions, you may be able to stabilize the patient with fluids and pressors. It's important to remember to avoid agents that blunt the heart rate or reduce preload, such as diuretics and nitrates. So we established large bore access. We gave two liters of IV fluid as a bolus, and there was really not significant improvement in the patient's hypotension. We started Levofed, and unfortunately, the patient continued to decompensate with several near syncopal episodes. An A-line was placed during this initial period of management, and we could see on the A-line clear pulses paradoxus. Dr. Mendes, is there anything else you can think of that we could have done to stabilize this patient? And when do you know that it's time for pericardiocentesis? Well, Katie, I think uh, the team made the, you know, the diagnosis quickly and efficiently based on the information that you have reviewed thus far. So I think the patient now is clearly in cardiogenic shock, and the next step would definitely be drainage of the pericardial fluid. And as we said above, that could either be done percutaneously or um, surgically if there is time. However, if for some reason the diagnosis of pericardial tamponade is still within question based on your clinical assessment as well as your echocardiogram, one additional thing that you could perform is a right heart catheterization. In the setting of pericardial tamponade, the diastolic pressures of all the heart chambers will be elevated and equal. In addition, if a catheter is placed in the pericardial space, the pericardial pressure will not only be elevated, but will be equal to the atrial and ventricular diastolic pressures. But I think, again, as in this particular case, and in most cases with pericardial effusions, the diagnosis of tamponade is usually made clinically, is relatively clear, and pericardial drainage should be planned as soon as possible. Okay, so we did call for pericardiocentesis, and it was performed at bedside secondary to the patient's instability. We were able to aspirate dark red pericardial fluid, and there was resolution of the patient's hemodynamic instability after about 100 milliliters were removed. We left a pericardial drain in, and over the next three hours, an additional 400 milliliters of dark red fluid was drained. 
Dr. Mendes, what do you think about these findings of the pericardial fluid in this patient? So Katie, in this patient, the finding of bloody pericardial fluid is not surprising given that she just had open heart surgery and was started on anticoagulation. Even so, the pericardial fluid should be sent for the usual other causes of pericardial uh, effusion, including signs for infection, so gram stain in culture, check for malignancy, and obviously unlikely in this particular case, but AFB testing as well. Other common measurements that you can send if it is unclear whether the pericardial fluid is exudative or transudative would include protein and LDH. If the concentration of the pericardial protein is over 0.5 or the pericardial LDH to serum LDH ratio is greater than 0.6, it is likely that the pericardial fusion is exudative. And Dr. Mendes, how would patient history change what you would do in a situation where you expect tamponade? For example, if this patient had just been in a motor vehicle collision or had a history of pulmonary hypertension, what would you do differently? Yeah, I mean, those are all good questions. And again, it comes back to the importance of taking the clinical information and and moving it along with your decision-making. And in this case, I would just like to say because this patient just recently had mitral valve surgery and was anticoagulated, the fact that she had um, a bloody effusion makes sense. But you might think about in someone like this, if you were not able to successfully drain the pericardial fluid completely, you might want to go back in and do a pericardial window to completely drain all that blood, which will become very inflammatory and, and, and cause a lot of fibrosis long-term. So that would be something to think about specifically in this patient. Other things to think about specifically, there are clinical situations where one wants to be cautious with the drainage of pericardial fusion or would prefer surgical versus percutaneous drainage. So an example would be a patient that develops a pericardial fusion as a result of myocardial rupture or aortic dissection. So in these instances, if the patient is reasonably stable, surgical drainage with correction of the underlying problem is preferable to percutaneous drainage. Percutaneous drainage can disrupt the thrombus that may have formed over the rupture or dissection flap and lead to hemodynamic collapse. So you definitely want to approach this as as a team with your surgical colleagues. The other instance that comes to mind are patients with severe pulmonary hypertension where large pericardial effusions are not uncommon and the usual signs of tamponade can be masked because the thickened right ventricle and elevated right ventricular pressures prevent diastolic collapse even when the pericardial pressures are elevated. The other uh, interesting thing about patients with pulmonary hypertension and effusions are that they may have what we call regional tamponade in which the left atrium and the left ventricle may be the chambers that are compressed, and the RA and the RV remain fully um, open during the diastolic filling period because of the high pressures. Interesting, our own Dr. Hemnes uh, reported a case series of six patients with pulmonary arterial hypertension that underwent therapeutic pericardiocentesis, and she found that three of them died during or after the procedure. Although the explanation for these deaths is not entirely clear, it is possible that by removing pericardial fluid in these patients, 
the RV rapidly dilates and without the support of the pericardial fusion, the right ventricle acutely fails. So uh, the teaching point here is that in patients with pulmonary hypertension, especially those with enlarged right ventricles and severe dysfunction, be very cautious when removing pericardial fluid. Yeah, I think that's really important. We have to kind of think of our patient's entire history and clinical scenario before knowing exactly what the right thing to do is. And the right thing for one patient may lead to harm in another patient. Dr. Mendes, do you have any additional comments regarding this case or our patient? Yeah, a couple couple sort of closing points here. You know, first of all, the risk of pericardial tamponade following cardiac surgery is still a relatively rare occurrence, probably occurs in about 2% of our patients, but is most common in the patient that you presented, which is a patient undergoing valve surgery and requiring anticoagulation. The other thing, again, I will just stress again, is that in patients who are post-cardiac surgery or post-myocardial infarction, because of pericardial inflammation that occurs because of the surgery or because of the acute infarct, they can develop localized accumulations of fluid or, or blood. And as a result, they can develop tamponade with compression of a single chamber. So for example, a patient might have isolated left atrial compression and tamponade physiology following mitral valve surgery but the other chambers, the RA and the RV, may look completely normal. In this case, the typical physical exam findings that we've been looking for, like distended neck veins or distant heart sounds, are not going to be present. And you will have to use, again, your, your clinical judgment as well as important features found on echocardiogram, such as compression of the left atrium in the case that I just gave you, to help you make the diagnosis. The other type of pericardial tamponade to think about uh, in patients who are hypotensive is low pressure tamponade. This usually occurs in patients who are very severely hypovolemic due to blood loss, hemodialysis, or aggressive diuresis. In these patients, the pericardial and diastolic pressures are low and the IVC may be small on echocardiography. However, echocardiography is still helpful and may demonstrate RV and RV chamber collapse and variation in mitral and tricuspid inflow, which are typical for tamponade. Rapid volume expansion with saline or lactated ringers should you, will usually elicit the typical cardiac tamponade hemodynamics and help the patient in terms of blood pressure. Great. Those are all really important points for us to keep in mind. So I'm just going to summarize kind of what we've talked about during this episode. So first of all, pericardial tamponade occurs when there is an abnormal accumulation of fluid in the pericardial space that results in compression of the cardiac chambers, elevation and filling pressures, and reduced stroke volume, ultimately leading to cardiogenic shock. Pericardial tamponade can occur with small and large volumes of pericardial effusion, and it is the rapid accumulation of pericardial fluid that leads to a marked increase in pericardial pressure and hemodynamic compromise. Pericardial tamponade is a clinical diagnosis. Elevated neck veins, pulses paradoxus, and distant heart sounds are classic findings in pericardial tamponade. Pulses paradoxus may be absent in hypotensive patients, and heart sounds may be normal if the effusion is small. 
Pocus and Echo are our go-to imaging tools to diagnose the effusion, location, and hemodynamic significance of the pericardial effusion. Tamponade can be initially treated with fluids and pressors, but percutaneous or surgical drainage is the more definitive treatment. And finally, the various presentations of tamponade, including regional tamponade and low-pressure tamponade, require a high index of suspicion to find, diagnose, and treat. Thank you all for listening. Dr. Mendes, thank you so much for being with us today. We've all learned a lot from this, and we are prepared to care for all patients with tamponade in the future. Thanks, Katie. That was a lot of fun.